All right. Good evening. I'm going to get started. Lord, thank you for your word. <clears throat> thank you for your example uh, that we might follow after you. We might look to you to know how uh, we should live here today uh, in our culture and um, cause us to, uh, to see you as you truly are and to, uh, to know you as you are and to uh, forsake all images and uh, false examples of you that we may have wrongly set up uh, in our hearts and in our minds. We love you. Amen. We can thank uh, Pete Hendrickson from Northern Awning and Window for the new doors. Uh, that he donated, that was pretty cool, and, and they installed, um, I think, yesterday and the day before, so um, it's much brighter now. So last week we talked a little bit about the role of the church in culture, and the, the effort was to say that the church should have a role in culture, and the church should speak on uh, the issues of the day, the church should be involved um, in the in the culture and influencing the culture. Um, what I want to talk about here tonight, uh, next week we're going to get into some practical things that we can do to in, to be influential for the kingdom. Just really like annoyingly practical because then you kind of have to do it. Um, so we'll do that next week um, so you can all skip if you don't want to hear that. Um, this week, we're going to talk a little bit about the tension between truth and love. Okay, so if we're going to be culturally involved, culturally engaged, we have to embrace both the truth and we have to present it and embrace it in doing so in a loving manner. Um, so there are two ways we can err. ERR, err, when we look at being culturally engaged. We can err on the truth side, and we can err on the love side, or the misapplication of love, or the misdefinition of love. But when we get it right is when we apply both together, and um, and a little bit, um, if we get into it tonight, but it might be next week, we're going to talk a little bit about room for error for ourselves, allowing ourselves to act out, truly living in grace, knowing that you might get it wrong. It's okay. Uh, as a Christian, you can make mistakes. I know that's freaky, but... So, the changing... Let me just start by saying this. When we're engaging the culture, the first priority for us is to, yes, see human hearts transformed and be born of God. However, we are still to present the ways of God to the culture, even if they don't respond well. But we do have an obligation to do so in a manner where we can be found faithful before God. But let me preface this whole thing by saying, the changing of a human heart is entirely a work of the Spirit. Man cannot force it, either trying to convince or force it, I'm going to make this happen. The changing of a human heart is entirely a work of the Spirit. Man cannot force it. Our efforts to persuade men are to properly steward our own hearts before God, attempting to create the greatest opportunity for them to rightly choose. So, we attempt to persuade, as Paul says. However, we cannot force the transformation of a heart. You cannot make that happen. That's entirely a work of the Spirit. So our role is to, be, is to be found faithful before God in attempting to persuade. And when we attempt to persuade, we want to do it in such a manner that gives the most likelihood for the recipient to choose rightly. Knowing full well that we can't control it, but we want to we wanna do it in the best way possible, yeah? So we don't want to cause any uh, extra offense because we know that the gospel is offensive in and of itself. It's very nature. Um, so we just, we just don't want to add to that unnecessarily. That's kind of our goal 
as we interact this way. But our primary goal is to be found faithful, presenting in love the truth before God. But before we get into how we're going to go about that and where we can avoid mistakes, I just have to say it is entirely a work of the Spirit that causes hearts to be changed, transformed, uh, and born of God. Okay. Truth. We're going to start with the truth side. Um, So first of all, when Jesus is pictured in Revelation 19, he is called faithful and true. The the rider on the white horse, his name is is called faithful and true. So those two attributes are very, very important. He's true throughout history, but when he is about to re-enter history to come and conquer earth again, faithful and true are the two attributes by which he is called. So those those two elements will be very, very important as we near the end of the age, both for him and for his people, faithful and true. Revelation 19, Jesus is called faithful and true. So, to picture Jesus only as a loving, merciful, tender man is an incomplete picture. It's a correct picture, but it's incomplete if it's not also paired with he is just, he is holy, he is righteous, and he is committed to truth. So, we can't just say, That we like the Jesus who's loving, that doesn't talk about this, 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 or this. He doesn't condemn. He just just loves and he doesn't judge. And he said, I don't judge, which is a complete uh, errant way to read what he said. But that's a a major flow right now, both in the the church and in culture. We're just going to take the Jesus that's loving and merciful, and he's got the nice shining, gleaming hair, the blue eyes, and the white robe. Um, But we cannot abandon the rest of the picture. We've talked about this before. So I just want to say that in Revelation 19, before Jesus re-enters the scene visibly, his name is faithful and true. It's very important. He's also just, holy, righteous, and committed to the truth. Um, Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So as we see it in a kingdom scope, so you have, you have Jesus, obviously the kingdom reflects who he is, but the kingdom has righteousness and justice as the foundation of the throne. Very, very important. Jesus is also called the way, the truth, and the life. So he is, as a person, remember he is a man, He is the full manifestation of truth lived out. Truth in the flesh. So when we look at his life, we have to look at the the full picture. If you just take a random random portion, you're going to see a little part of who he is. You've got to look at at who he is in the greater context. So he is the full manifestation of truth lived out. We know this, right? Yeah, this isn't new. He confronted the twelve... He confronted the, uh, the leaders of his day, both political and religious. Jesus' message, his primary message, was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is a confrontational message. It means stop doing what you're doing, stop living the way you're living, and turn to God. So Jesus is he's shown to us as a, as a very confrontational person. He also warned of the coming judgment. Again, this is an area we kind of like to avoid because we don't want to be thrown in with the doomsday lot. We, we, just want to, we kind of want to just avoid that part of it, but, but Jesus did this. He talked about the coming destruction that would come to Jerusalem. He talked about the coming judgment that would come at the end of the age. He didn't shy away from these things. We, now, as did Jesus, we have a responsibility to God to present the truth to people. Our responsibility lies first in being faithful to God and his ways. And when we see it clearly this way, we understand that people are going to have to change for him, as we all did. 
And people are going to be confronted by his way of doing things, but that's called conviction. So, first and foremost, our responsibility lies in being faithful to God in his way. So, when we present the truth to a population, if that's one person or a crowd of 50 or your mom, if you're presenting the truth, you're doing that less for your mom and more to be faithful before the Lord. That's a very important thing to get established because as it becomes more and more culturally unacceptable to present truth, we're not doing it primarily for them. We're doing it primarily for him. So when we understand that my role in presenting truth is primarily to be faithful before God, it changes the way we function. Because then, if my message is rejected, I don't feel dejected because I was still faithful, even though I'm a little bit saddened and grieved over the response of the recipient. In addition, when we hearken back to Bonhoeffer's comment about God will not hold us guiltless if we're silent, um, he will reward us for what we speak. So we are living before the Lord, and our, our presentation of his truth is to be found faithful before God. <clears throat> Again, people will be confronted by this message of this is the way God says it has to be. But that's what's called conviction. And conviction can lead to repentance. The gospel is a confrontational and offensive message. I'm sure none of us had to change when we were confronted by the gospel. Um, However, for the one or two of us who did, we already know that this means us saying no to my way and yes to God's way. So we shouldn't be uncomfortable offering the same to others. we've got the experience that says, if I accept conviction, if I deal rightly with my offense and say, yes, Lord, your way, not my way, I know it leads to life. So we become the perfect vessels to carry the same message to those who may not yet be ready to hear it. Now, of course, we've all seen this truth presentation as it's been abused. Yes? Okay, no one has seen this. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple examples since nobody has ever seen this. When truth is presented apart from love, it comes across as angry. When truth is presented apart from love, it's it's intended to drive away the recipient rather than draw the recipient. Love presents truth in an attempt to draw. When love is absent, truth is usually presented in such a manner as to to punish, to condemn, to drive away, to um, bring judgment inappropriately, not for the sake of leading to conviction unto repentance unto life. I I could list off different Uh, Public figures, I will not do that um, because there's grace for those who are making an attempt to present what's true. And I don't want to sit and nitpick Christians who probably have very good intentions in presenting things because they know it needs to be presented. And maybe it comes off a little bit more harsh than they would have hoped for. They were, that's grace. That's what grace is for. Grace is not primarily for us being able to go and sin. Grace is primarily for us to attempt to do good and make a mistake and allow God to clean it up, teach us a lesson, and make us better the next time we do it. So when we have these public figures and they present something and it's true, biblically, you can point to it and go, son of a gun, the guy's right again, but is he an idiot? nobody's ever had those thoughts. I've had them a couple times. Somebody says something after a situation, 
let's say a, a hurricane comes through and somebody makes a very public pronouncement of what this is, and biblically you go, ah, I can't really argue with him, but I just with, wish he'd shut up. Well, that may, there's two reasons that may be. One, he may have presented it as a clanging gong without love. Two, you just may not be comfortable with confrontation. But because we have seen this abused, we tend to avoid the presentation of truth. I, I think we like the presentation of love side because it feels nice. We make other people feel nice. But when it comes to presenting truth, we tend to avoid it because we've seen it abused. And culturally, everyone is really quick to say how you're so judgmental, how you're bigoted, how you're unloving, how you're hateful. It's okay. They did the same thing to Jesus. Um, but we will be called that even if you present it in perfection. Um, I had an experience where um, I was in a conversation with a Buddhist fella. Um, was sharing with him about, about Jesus. He kind of gave me some stuff that just wasn't accurate. So I presented the gospel to him. And I actually had a guy come up to me afterward that had overheard our conversation. And this guy was a lifelong Catholic. And he goes, I have never heard the gospel presented so clearly in my entire life. It's like, that was just amazing. And I was like, wow, cool. And then I leave. And later the Lord's like, you know, you didn't want that guy, the Buddhist friend. You didn't want that guy to accept your message. The intent was not in, in love to draw him. The intent was to show him how he was wrong, to push him, to say, you're wrong, I'm right. When it's done in love, it's, you're wrong, but if you accept what I'm saying, you can be right. It's really important when we present truth that we, we remember that those who are currently our enemy in this conversation, we hope to one day be our friends. So when we're in a conversation with someone and they're vitriolic, against us. They're hateful toward us. They're spewing uh, profanity and vile vulgarity at us. Um, it's our responsibility to keep the big picture in mind that one, they have an unrenewed mind. Two, they're in total and utter rebellion to God. And three, I primarily hope that this is my brother for eternity one day. And I'm going to treat him respectfully because I don't want to be the one to have to apologize after he gets saved. Lastly, on the truth side, <clears throat> if we only present the love and we don't present the truth, how will they ever know? Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. The message they were talking about, the good news message they were talking about was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Stop doing what you're doing. Turn to God, and that's called the good news. So blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. This is from heaven's perspective, not always from the perspective of those who are hearing. God views us as blessed when we are proclaimers of the truth. Secondly, if we don't present truth, how will they know? Um, I just recently heard a story about a little, it was fictional, so don't freak out. Um, a little girl who had run off uh, into the woods and hidden and so if I get the details wrong, just forgive me. But it, anyway, just bear with me. So this little girl goes running off into the woods. She's like five, right? And she hides in the woods, and her mom sends her little sister out after her. And the little sister goes by, and big sister knows there's a bridge over here that's really, really dangerous. And she sees her little sister go by heading toward the bridge, and she knows that if she goes on this bridge, there's a really good chance she could fall off. And she doesn't say anything. And sure enough, little sister goes on the bridge and falls off and dies. And, and I remember like thinking about this story, and I was like, how could she do that? Well, she didn't really do anything wrong. I mean, she didn't push her off the bridge. No, but she knew that if she kept going, she was going to die. And she didn't step out and say anything. And it was such a clear picture of what we see culturally right now, is we watch... Maybe family, maybe friends, maybe coworkers, and they're on a path that if they don't divert, 
and change direction, they're going to die. And they're going to perish eternally. If someone, at least we have a responsibility to speak out and warn them and give them an opportunity to change direction. If we don't present the truth, how will they know? Secondly, love. So we tend to err slightly when we view love right now. Not everybody, not all of us, but our tendency is to view love as accepting, embracing, supporting, and non-confronting, right? So our tendency when we view love is to just, we want to love unconditionally. That's how we call it. And so we just, we accept everything about someone in an effort to make them feel like they belong. Yet, friendship with us does not guarantee salvation. There has to be a confrontation between an unbelieving heart and the truth of the gospel. If that does not happen, there is no conviction that leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. So, if we view love wrongly as accepting, embracing, supporting, and and non-confronting, What we end up doing is we just befriend people right into an eternity of hell. We never warn them of the danger of the course that they're on. We take 1 Corinthians 13 and we apply it in a way that will make people like us. And we tend to skip verse 6 which says, Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. So if we really take the love passage of 1 Corinthians 13, it includes... Rejoicing in the truth, which longs to see others embrace it, which means that we're going to have to present it to someone who is living in wickedness. We see it often wrongly as though love is the unconditional acceptance of an individual as they are with no requirements that they admit wrong and seek to change. That's an unbiblical love. You can love someone while you present what's true to them in such a way that may offend them, uh, they may not want to be around you anymore, and you can continue to love them and pursue relationship with them. Presenting the truth does not terminate a relationship. It doesn't need to on our behalf. Love was demonstrated in Jesus' life, as we mentioned about truth. So Jesus, we know he healed. Yeah, he healed everybody. He loved the down and outers. Zacchaeus, he selflessly served We see that as he's staying up. Uh, He's dealing with crowds when he'd rather go away and grieve. He's washing stinky feet. We all really like that story, which is awesome because it's true. He selflessly served. He sacrificed. He fed the hungry. He loved the poor. He loved the rich. He hung out with drunks and gluttons. He hung out with religious folks. He hung out with disciples. He forgave the woman caught in sin. And I think this passage John chapter 8 is a place where we can really gather a great deal of insight into how to find the tension between truth and love. John chapter 8. We're going to read the part about the women caught in adult. The woman is this one, um, just thankfully, and uh, no one else sinned in Israel at the time but this one lady. But um, she was caught, thankfully, brought to justice. But John 8, 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. It doesn't stop there, though. 
Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So where this gets skewed, in my experience, is that we're, we're taught or we're instructed or we're told when reading this that Jesus, he, just doesn't, he doesn't judge anyone. He just says, you're all messed up. I'm not going to say anything bad about anyone. No one needs to change. I just love everyone. He does love everyone. But what does he say to the woman when he tells her to go? Woman, go. Go back to the guy you were caught with and keep doing what you were doing because it's cool with me. No. Jesus' message is go and sin no more. Go. Don't go back to the way you were living. I'm going to give you mercy, but it's not so that you can continue on with the way of life that you've chosen. This is a woman who knows that she's about to die because of what she's done, and she's not denying that that death is appropriate. Jesus then uses an opportunity to confront those who are unwilling to acknowledge that they deserve to die too. He's not condoning her behavior. He's confronting theirs. He confronts them who are unwilling to acknowledge their sin, and he tells them they all deserve what she's going to get. And they all leave. I find it amazing the older ones leave first. She, however, stays. At this point, I'm wondering, what is this woman thinking? What is she thinking? She doesn't know how the story's going to end. We do. But she doesn't. She's wondering, is this holy rabbi going to wait until all others are gone and pick up the nearest stone and crush my skull with it? She stays. It's our admission of guilt in our receipt of salvation that allows us to become those who help others to do the same. Once we have sat at the feet of Jesus knowing what we deserve and receive instead his mercy unto salvation, suddenly we become qualified to be the ones who confront others with a truth that could potentially lead them to his feet, knowing what they deserve, with the possibility of being led into repentance unto salvation. What's amazing about this John 8 chapter, um, Jesus goes on later in the same chapter to tell them, you don't know me or my father, If you knew me, you'd know my father by these words. He tells him, you're going to go and die in your sin. So here's the the chapter where we're told Jesus doesn't judge or condemn. And and he's telling him, you're going to die in your sin. John chapter 8 is a very powerful uh, chapter. And then the last part of this chapter is where the truth will set you free. I find it amazing that these biblical scholars who tell us that Jesus is loving toward all because of the woman caught in adultery fail to read 12 verses down where he tells them, it's the truth when embraced that will bring freedom to your life. It is not unconditional love and acceptance of stupidity of lifestyle that brings freedom to your life. Plato has a quote where he says it is the, essentially, it is the epitome of liberty that leads to utter slavery. In other words, you just do whatever you want, as often as you want, as long as you want, it will lead you into utter bondage. It's the truth that will really, truly liberate us. 
So, when we're presenting truth in love, it's got to have both elements. It cannot be truth without love because it's angry. It's spiteful. It's intended to drive away and, and show people what, what they've got coming. Our heart must always be for restoration. If we're declaring the truth without a desire to see a person restored and forgiven, we are a clanging gong. So it's a really good place to start with a heart check before you get into a situation. Um, I have, uh, personally, a 24-hour rule. Um, a situation comes up and uh, something happens and you know, right away I'm, I'm uh, we usually react emotionally first, right? Nobody, nobody else, but maybe I just do. Um, somebody says something and or does something stupid. Uh, this could be at work or, you know, never at my house, but um, maybe someone else's house, somebody does something dumb. And so instantly I react emotionally, but you got to give yourself this 24-hour rule. And so always I try to take 24 hours and process the situation, mostly to make sure that when I go and deal with it, my heart is for restoration, I'm not just looking to get rid of a situation and drive someone away. And so it's just a time to give yourself the opportunity to collect your emotions and respond in a manner that's wanting to see someone brought near rather than driven away. This is developed. It's okay if you feel like, I can't do this yet. Because it's, it's hard to do this right. And that's why we do need to give ourselves some grace when we're learning. So if we declare the truth without a desire to see a person restored and forgiven, we are a clanging gong. We must examine our hearts before confrontation or during. Sometimes you don't have a 24-hour rule. And it helps in a conversation where there's disagreement happening and you are presenting truth to continue to ask yourself, am I seeking to see this person restored? And if they reject my message, will I be grieved over the state of their heart? Or will I feel excited because I told them what's up? If I simply want the other party to get what's coming, my heart's out of line. If I simply want to give them a piece of my mind, my heart is out of line. And if I just want to tell them how they made me feel, my heart is out of line. This is a relational way at times for us to go and give someone a shot for how they affected us. And always when we enter a conflict relationally, we should be seeking to see the relationship restored, not just take a shot at someone for what they did to us. Our heart must be as God's heart, desiring restoration. It's not our responsibility to persuade people to rightly choose. Stop. It is not our responsibility to persuade people to rightly choose. That means you cannot cause them to choose right. You cannot cause them to choose right. It's our responsibility to adequately present the truth in love that they might have the opportunity to choose. There's a, it sounds like semantics. It's not. There's a very, very important differentiation that we're making. Because this is why. The only perfect leader, the only perfect apostle, the only perfect minister, the only perfect son or brother that's ever lived was essentially utterly rejected. So Jesus was able to have joy before the Father, knowing he had perfectly executed what the Father required of him. And yet he was essentially utterly rejected by all the hearers. What does that mean? His responsibility was not to make them believe. His responsibility was to present to them what was available, but it's their responsibility to choose. You can be faithful 
to the Lord unto death if no one should follow you. And it's really important because you, if you, if you take responsibility for trying to convince people to believe and taking responsibility for their choice, because it's usually fewer people that buy into the gospel than more, you will spend a life feeling like you've failed if you do not make this differentiation. If you're a leader, which all of you are, you can be the best leader, handle things in the best way possible, and people will not accept what you want of them. And if you take that responsibility and blame upon yourself as though you are a bad leader, you will spend most of your life in misery. It's just reality. Your responsibility is to be a good leader, to do things as well as you possibly can. But it is their responsibility to choose right or wrong whether or not they will follow you. If they choose not to follow you and they choose not to embrace what's right, you can still rejoice that you've done what was your responsibility to do. You can grieve over the loss of that relationship or the potential for their lives that could have been, but you need not feel like you failed. And this is very, 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 very important as you move forward and you move more influential into leadership and ministry and cultural confrontation, that you do not place your value and your performance as a leader on the response of your hearers. Otherwise, Jesus was the greatest failure of a leader who's ever been. And we obviously know that's not true. It's not the quality of the presenter that causes a man to rightly choose, but the tenderness of the listener's heart. This is, it's a really important thing. Um, I, was, I was talking um, with Mary the other night about how do you create buy-in from people? you got these amazing things happening. And you're a part of something beautiful and wondrous and holy. And the kingdom's going forth. And you can be so excited, so zealous, so passionate. You can be the greatest presenter who's ever been. And people can still look at you and be like, Dude, is this dude going to shut up? It's been like 45 minutes. Cody's got his pocket watch out. (laughs) And it's absolutely true. Your ability to persuade, your charisma, your love, your passion, your desire as a leader, as an influencer, is far less important than the condition of the hearer's heart. People can still choose poorly, in spite of you, no matter how great of a leader you may be. Restoration cannot come without man admitting he is unfit to save himself. So if we do not present the truth, they never have the opportunity to admit that they cannot save themselves, that they have need, they have done wrong. If man is wrongly told that God accepts him, no matter how he lives, he has been deceived. If we tell people that God accepts them no matter how they live, we are contributing to the deception. Man must have the opportunity to admit that he is guilty, wrong, and in need of saving. Women, they don't need to. They're already perfect. We know that. We must be crucified with Christ and rise to live for him like him. On this point, it's not perfection of performance that God's seeking, but position of heart. We talked about this. Is the heart of a person living in attempt to please God or oneself? That's the heart condition that matters. We're not telling people you've got to be perfect for the rest of your life. You can't ever mess up again. 
We're confronting people with the reality that you cannot any longer live for yourself. You have to turn and live God's way in an attempt to do things how he says. When the position of the heart switches from what I want to what he wants, then they're good to go. That's what happens in salvation. Man is restored when he acknowledges that his ways are not God's and seeks forgiveness and a new life and direction. It comes by faith, but you cannot accept Christ as Savior if you don't think you need to be saved. Again, it's not our responsibility to persuade people to rightly choose, but to adequately explain the error of their ways and their need for God. I know from my own experience in seeing the truth side abused and the love side is a lot easier to present. It's a lot more pleasant to present. People respond to the love side much better than the truth side. I know this. As far as acceptance of me as the presenter. However, my experience is if I present only the love side, I make new friends, but we don't see converts come into the kingdom. When I was willing to have the courage to offer love with confrontation, I might lose friends for 12 to 18 months, but eventually we would see converts come into the kingdom because something had been planted in their heart of the Spirit that God was able to birth into new life. That is a part of what we're contributing to when we speak the Word of God. It never returns void. We are planting seeds of eternity in the hearts of men. And even though they might reject us for a time, we may yet see them be born of God as they go forward. I've been in many, many situations with people that I cared about deeply where I had to tell them something I knew they did not want to hear. I had to tell them, listen, the way you're living is not of God. And they would disagree. Well, I've got grace. Or God makes room for these kind of sins. Or this will be justified eventually. Or screw you, you hypocrite. That was fairly regular. But often what would come was at times years later, something that had been sown in the heart of this individual was suddenly born. They have the scales fall from their eyes. They say, yes, Lord, your way, not my way. They repent. They come to Jesus. And later they had come back and say, you know, you're the only person who would ever tell me. How could I have had conversations with people said, I had so many Christian friends and no one else would tell me that what I was doing was wrong. Why would no one else love me enough to confront me? I've had this conversation multiple times. Why did no one else love me enough to confront me? And I'd tell them I was probably just angrier than they were. But sometimes God can even use that. In our day, there are many who do not know that there is a different way because they've never been told of the gospel of the kingdom of God. There are some who are vocal supporters of things in opposition, vitriolic, opposition to God. And they may have simply never been told of a better way. Lastly, I think it's important to have some form of relationship with someone if you want to seek to influence them. I think that it's really hard to present truth in love via text message. It's because there's no tone of voice. It's kind of clangy when you read some of these things. But I think if you're presenting to an audience that you do not know or an individual that you do not know and you have no credibility, it's really hard for them to believe that you love them. Sometimes you do it anyway. Sometimes you do it anyway. Jesus did it anyway. 
So I'm not disqualifying that. I'm just saying usually it's best if you have some some form of relationship upon which to base your confrontation. However, I will say that Jesus would go about healing all who were sick, proclaiming the good news, and he'd show up in a new town and he'd just start confronting people. Because sometimes the truth just needs to be proclaimed. However, as we speak of spheres of influence, my point is to say, I don't know that the best approach for everyone is just to run down to 3rd in Washington on Saturday morning and start to declare, in, you can do it in a loving, truthful way, and it's going to be really hard to hear it that way because none of the people walking by know you. They don't know that you really love them. I've actually seen this work, though. So I'm not knocking anyone who's street preaching. I appreciate their courage. But what I am saying is that if someone knows you and they know you're a loving person, they're going to be a lot more likely to listen to your confrontation when you tell them they need to change their ways. You may not always have that luxury. God may ask you to say some things to some people that you do not know and you need to do it anyway just to be faithful to him. But when you have a relationship that's built in love and someone already knows you care about them, use it. Be courageous. Don't allow fear of their response to cause you to avoid an opportunity to share with them something they may never hear from another person. I'm not talking about they may die when they walk out of the room. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying... There may not be anyone else who loves them enough to present it to them. Because to love someone enough to present it to them means that you're willing to lose that relationship because you love them so much to give them the opportunity to change. Lastly, have the courage to make mistakes. Have the courage as a Christian to do it wrong. Do you know why I'm not going to start calling out names of public figures who may or may not have done something wrong? Because I've done it wrong. And I'll do it wrong again. But I would rather get it wrong and have to lean on God's grace to tell me, to fix me, to show me how to get it right than to stand in silence and show up before God at the end of the age and have him say, you wicked, lazy servant, look what I gave you. You did nothing with it. I'm taking it from you and I'm giving it to the one with ten. You know, the amazing thing when, when we look at these heroic figures of faith from Paul and Peter and all the rest of them throughout history, and we go, wow, they were so amazing. They didn't always know that they had it right when they were going for it. That's what grace is for. Guys, grace isn't so that I can go out on the weekend and live like an idiot and Sunday morning feel like God really loves me. That's not the primary purpose of grace. It's available for that. But that's not what it was really for. Grace is is there so that we can give it a shot. I could take a swing. I remember this guy when we were down in Granville in like 2006, this guy talking about, this is why the church loses the war with with Satan in the culture. Because the church goes, ready, aim, 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 aim. Aim! And Satan goes, fire, 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 fire. And we're so afraid of missing that we never pull the trigger. And by the time we try to pull the trigger, we're so beat up because he's fire, 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 fire. We can't find the target. That's because we don't understand grace. We don't understand that grace is so that we can go fire, fire. Fire, fire, go for it, give it a shot. But we're so afraid of making a mistake and having someone look at us and go, you bigoted Christian. That's what they called Jesus and he got it right. You're going to get it right. 
and they're going to call you a bigot. You're going to get it right, and they're going to say that you're hateful. You're going to get it right, and you're going to have people that walk away from you. But I'd rather have that experience and have God cheer when I show up in heaven than have people love me my whole life and him cast me into utter darkness because I would not take a stand. We have to have the courage to try and fail. I think this is one of the primary reasons why the church is failing. It's, it's coming apart. Maybe not here, maybe not every church, but as a whole, the church is so afraid to make a mistake that we won't engage with anyone because we're so much more worried about what they're going to say about us than they are about what we're going to say about them. We're not living to please men. We're living to please God. And as we're living to please God, you will make mistakes. He's not afraid of that. We're so much more afraid of Christians making a mistake than God is. He's not worried about us ruining his reputation. And you know what? You may even be able to leverage this in your prayer life. God, I'm out there. I'm preaching. I'm praying. I'm declaring. And there's no power coming through. For your name's sake, show them your glory. But since we are usually just trying not to make a mistake, we don't ever get to see God act powerfully on our behalf. If we want to see God act most powerfully on our behalf, we've got to step right to the front of the line. We've got to step over the line. You might fall down, you might wipe out, but you've got to be willing to try. This is what grace is for. So I'm going to close there. Next week, I really want to get into some really simple practicals. They'll be so annoying um, that you'll have a busy week, uh, weekend after that. It's Easter. So everyone will be with their family. Lots of opportunity. <laughs>